We've been watching the news quite a bit lately. Uh, by the way, in case you didn't know, America now has a new enemy. Norway. Uh, but I digress. You've probably been watching uh, a little bit about what's been going on in, in Florida. And uh, like many of you, I've been praying for the families of those victims. Nicholas Cruz shot 17 people, injured, uh, killed 17 people, injured some others. And praying for the, for the victims' families and friends. And also, uh, James and Kimberly Sneed. Uh, James and Kimberly Sneed were the couple that took Nicholas into their house after his mother passed away last year on November the 1st from pneumonia. And I think that's really generous. That's a lot of hospitality. I mean, you think about this. Somebody takes a 19-year-old young man into their home, someone to whom they're not related. His dad's been deceased for over a decade. His mom recently passes away. Apparently, the parents didn't really know him uh, except through the, the son. So to take him into their household, apparently he didn't pay rent. But they're teaching him. They've invested their lives in this person, teaching him how to cook and how to clean, how to use a microwave, how to do laundry, stuff like this. They took enough interest in his life to enroll him in adult education classes. They took interest in his life. The family attorney said that they tried to treat him like one of the family. They wanted him to feel like he was one of the family. And so they had rules. They had boundaries. They had expectations. And... They took all of his guns and they put them in a safe to which only they had a key, or so they thought. Now, they thought wrong. He had a key. But I don't blame the Sneeds because, you know, it's one thing to know you're dealing with someone who's troubled. But troubled's not the same as homicidal. They treated him as if he was in, but he wasn't. And the Sneeds are now paying a price. They've had to hire a lawyer. They've gotten, you know, nasty phone calls and emails. People are suspicious of them. They're being tried in the court of public opinion. And not just the local court, the, the national and the international court of public opinion. And that's probably going to be happening for several years. Maybe even decades. Maybe one day they're going to make a reality miniseries. And they're going to have to see themselves portrayed by somebody else and relive everything. I don't know. But the Sneeds are paying a price because they thought that Nicholas was in with them, but Nicholas knew different. Now, I feel for the Sneeds, but you know what? I really feel for Jesus Christ because you just think over the last couple of millennia, how many people have completely misjudged Jesus on the basis of people who claim to be in but weren't? How often has Jesus been mistried in the court of public opinion all because some people portrayed themselves as in, but they were out? It would seem that we ought to be able to tell in some respect or another who's in or who's out, who's actually a follower and who isn't. I mean, it, it seems that Jesus ought to make it clear to us, not just for Jesus' sake, but also for our sake, can I tell if I'm in or out, if I'm actually a follower or not? I mean, for Jesus' sake, we don't want people pretending they're in and they're not. We don't want to be declaring people in when they're not. And for ourselves, we don't want to be confused. So can Jesus speak with a little bit of clarity with regards to being able to evaluate, am I in or am I out?
Fortunately, Jesus does speak with, with clarity, a lot of clarity. And, uh, and, and we're really glad for this. For the most part, we have to grade our own papers. But we don't get to make the rules. He makes the rules, and you look at the rules, and you see, am I in or am I out? He spoke with clarity. You can tell. We can tell who's a disciple, who's not, what a disciple is, what it isn't. Am I following? Am I not? You can know. You can know with clarity. Jesus speaks clearly in certain passages, like the one we're going to be looking at today. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. So uh, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. May God bless reading his word and may be seated. Now, most of the time... When leaders of movements are leading movements, they want to make it easy and compelling for people to come in, for people to come and, and join, for people to sign up. But on this occasion, when these three men come to Jesus and they say, we want to follow you, I want to live with you, I want to be with you, Jesus doesn't seem to warmly greet them. In fact, it seems like he's kind of wanting to repel them a little bit, but it only seems that way. Because Jesus knows that he's dealing with some people who don't exactly understand what they're asking for. He's dealing with people who don't know what it means really fully to follow him. And he wants them to understand, okay? And he wants you and me to understand what is entailed in all of this. But before we get into what Jesus is, is explaining here, let me make a couple of overarching observations. And the first one is this. Jesus is willing to risk a smaller crowd, because what Jesus most wants are followers and not fans. Now, Jesus is not opposed to big crowds. Big crowds would follow after Jesus, and oftentimes the Holy Spirit, you see, draws big crowds. Big crowds of people represent individuals who have an opportunity to see and to hear the word firsthand for themselves. It's great. Jesus is all about big crowds. It's just that. Jesus does not confuse in his mind the distinction between a crowd of enthusiasts and a crowd of followers. And he doesn't want us confusing the two either. There's another overarching observation we need to make, and that is only Jesus gets to define what a follower of Jesus is. I don't get to define it. You don't get to define it. These guys in this text, they don't get to define it. Only Jesus gets to define it because he's the leader. In fact, you see at least implicitly in verse 57 and explicitly in verses 59 and 61, you see these guys saying to Jesus, we will follow you and here's how it's going to be. And Jesus implicitly replies, I'm telling you how it's going to be. You can't follow me however you see fit. 
you think it's this way, I think it's this way, and if you follow me in your own way, you're not following me. Now, Jesus doesn't exactly argue. He doesn't exactly debate. He certainly doesn't compromise. He just lays it out there. If you follow me in your own way, if your own way is not my way, you're in your own little world. You're not in mine. If you follow me in your way, you're not following me. Now, Jesus is unyielding when it comes to what it means to follow him. And we don't necessarily like it when he draws hard and fast lines like this. But when it comes to following Jesus, he cannot yield. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, some things cannot be compromised. Uh, If Jesus says the nature of following me is blue and somebody else says, well, I want following you to be yellow. Jesus can't say, well, okay, let's just make it following, following me is green. Let's just meet in the middle. No, wait, you said it was blue. It can't be blue and green. It's one or the other. Some things, if you try to compromise, you're changing the very nature of the thing. Following Jesus is one of those things that you cannot compromise without changing its very nature. And since Jesus has a very particular nature, living in relationship with him has a very particular nature. There's something else I think is worth mentioning too, and that is following Jesus is a complete and utter privilege. And Jesus is not aloof or or ignorant to this reality. Uh, when, When you find something of great price, you don't negotiate it down. You go and sell everything you have, and in your joy, you buy that field or that pearl of great price. Jesus knows, hey, I'm not a piece of furniture at a garage sale. You can't negotiate on this. Do you not understand who you're dealing with here? And so Jesus wants us to understand what following him is, and he lays it out for us in a way that I think is really plain. And the main thing that we learn here is deciding to follow Jesus is to enter the kingdom of God. Deciding to follow Jesus is to enter the kingdom of God. These disciples, or potential disciples, they talk about following him. I want to follow you, I want to follow you. And Jesus is directing their attention to life in the kingdom. Proclaiming the kingdom, serving the kingdom. To decide to follow Jesus is to enter into the kingdom because you've decided to treat Jesus as your king. Becoming a Christian is not mainly a matter of improving It's a matter of a change of nature and a change of status. So here's what the New Testament teaches, and this is really amazing. The New Testament teaches that when you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, the future age and the heavenly world come rushing into your life now because you've stepped into a new realm. Becoming a Christian is like stepping over the line into another territory, crossing a border into another kingdom. Because Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is here now in me. It's already, but it's not yet. It's still coming, but it's arrived in me. And when you make Jesus your king and you step over the line into a new kingdom, well, the, all, the, the not yet kind of comes into your life. And the power of the future age and the power of the heavenly realm begins to change you and remake you because you've got a new nature now and a new status and you're living in a new place and a new relationship. You've changed. It's like crossing the border. Now, that doesn't 
entail necessarily a lot of steps. It kind of does, but it doesn't. Let me explain. Suppose you want to cross over into Canada, into another kingdom, into another realm. If you were to walk from here, that's about 1,389 miles if you're heading straight north up toward Winnipeg to get to the border. At 2,000 steps per mile, that's 2,788,000 steps. Now, to get over the line, that's 2,788,001 steps. So how many steps does it take to get into Canada? One. Because all the other steps, you're still in the kingdom of America. There's a point where you might be right up to the border, but if you're going to move over, there's one step you take that takes you out of America into Canada from one kingdom into another. You could take 2,788,000 steps and you grow in your understanding and, and reformation, whatever, but that if you're right on the border with one step to go, you're still 100% in America. There's one step. Now, biblically speaking, the one step that we take that moves us from the kingdom of me, where I rule me, into the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of God, where Jesus rules me, is faith. That's the step. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 puts it, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. God, by his grace, through Jesus Christ, tore down the border wall. Just ripped it from top to bottom, the scripture says. So there's not a wall there. By his grace, he's made a way for us to come into the kingdom. But the step that you take, and I take that one step, it's faith. It's trusting in Christ. It's confidence. And the moment you place your faith in Jesus, the moment you place your confidence in Christ and in Christ alone, you step over the border into the kingdom of God. And you've been given a new nature and a new status. But when you, that, that one step, it's the faith in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, the discernible thing that everyone sees, including you, is you are now following Jesus and no longer following your own way because your faith is in Jesus. It's not in you. Billy Graham passed away on Wednesday of last week. I think most of us know this. If, if ever there was a man who preached Faith in Christ, the necessity to place your faith in Jesus, it was Billy Graham. Which, by the way, how many of you ever went to a Billy Graham crusade? Several of us. In the last service, it seemed like more than half of the people actually went to a Graham crusade. I, I know that there were some in the other service that were actually saved at a Billy Graham crusade. How many of you were or you know somebody very close to you that was saved at a Billy Graham crusade? Just kind of curious, okay? few of us. He taught about... Placing your faith in Jesus. That was the whole point. At the Billy Graham Crusades, there was a moment where, where an invitation was given. And a song would be sung. And people would come forward to place their faith in Jesus. Two songs that were sung most prominently. One of them is, I have decided to follow Jesus. The Billy Graham Crusades made that more popular than any other song. Here are the lyrics. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Then the next was, though none go with me, I still will follow. Repeat, repeat. Then it was, my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. Repeat, repeat. Then you'd sing again, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Now why is it that that song was sung at the invitation time when people were specifically called to place their faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the reason. Because for Billy Graham, 
placing your faith in Jesus and making a decision to follow Jesus were exactly one and the same. They were one and the same for Billy Graham, and they're one and the same for Jesus, and they're one and the same for Paul, and they're one and the same for all the authors of the New Testament that God used. The other prominent hymn that was sung at the Billy Graham Crusades is what? Can anybody tell me? Just as I am. Just as I am is probably the most famous Billy Graham Crusade invitation song. And here's the last verse. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Okay, did you get that? I'm yours and I'm yours alone. Now why is that song sung at the invitation? You know, God, your, your love is like none, none other. I'm yours and yours completely. Why, why are we singing that at the invitation? Well, because... 100% yieldedness to God and faith in Jesus Christ, one and the same thing. You can't place your faith in Jesus without yielding completely to him, without making a decision to follow him. They're one and the same. Getting back to Jesus Christ, talking about following him. He's trying to clear some misconceptions up in the minds of these who are potentially going to be following him as disciples. And when it comes to the first man... He's clearing up some ideas about the king and the kingdom. And when it comes to the, to the first man in verses 57 and 58, here's what he's trying to clear up. He's trying to get this, this man to understand that you've got kind of a, an opportunistic, idealistic view. The, the first man is coming to Jesus saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. But the reason he's saying, I'll follow you wherever you go, is because he thinks that when he starts to follow Jesus, when he steps into the kingdom, it's all going to be peaches and cream. That's why Jesus responds the way that he does. This, this man essentially is thinking this. Hey, here's the king. He's a king like no other. He's making a kingdom like no other. He's pouring out the old wine and tearing up the old wineskins, pouring new wine into new wineskins. This is revolution. It's going to be a better world and a better life. I want to get in on this. I'm in. Wherever you go, I'll follow you. And in the face of this idealistic misunderstanding, Jesus says, when you come into my kingdom, when you make me your king, it's not going to be all peaches and cream. It's going to bring you necessarily into conflict with the world around you. It's not going to be all easy. That's why Jesus says what he says when he says, look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I was uh, reading a little bit about Billy Graham, and I don't normally qu quote Billy Graham, but, you know, it's his Sunday, okay. I thought this was kind of interesting. He said, our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. When you become a Christian, and your number one priority is pleasing God, and not offending his righteousness and holiness, you think that's not going to rub the world in which you live a little bit wrong? Billy Graham was very, very popular with a whole lot of people, but he was also incredibly unliked by a lot of people. I, I looked at some of the responses to, to his death. One of the weirdest tweets was, uh, you know, have fun in hell, Billy Graham. I mean, like, who says stuff like this? Well, people who are not in the kingdom of God. Billy Graham was not concerned about offending people. He didn't want himself to offend people, but if the gospel offends people, well, that's just how it has to be. Jesus says, look, foxes 
They have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's saying, look, I'm the king. I'm the embodiment of the kingdom. If you're going to follow me, here's how it's going to be. I'm bringing the kingdom by my death. I'm bringing through suffering. Oh, and by the way, I'm already wandering around. I don't have a place to lay down. You know why Jesus is wandering? Because he's trying to avoid people who are trying to kill him so he can do a little bit more teaching. This is why the teachers of the law pay off Judas, because they can't track his movements. So Jesus says, I just want you to know what you're getting in for. I'm bringing the kingdom. It's already here in me, but it hasn't come in all of its fullness. It's like an acorn. You plant in the ground, and it grows and grows and grows until eventually the whole thing takes over. But it's not here in its fullness, and until the kingdom is here in its fullness, it's going to come through sacrifice, through suffering, through self-denial. I just want you to understand this. I just want you to see what's coming. You've got to love Jesus for being so incredibly straightforward with this person. Now, before we move on, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, you can't follow me. We don't know how the guy responds to Jesus. He's just straightforward. So before we move on, let's just make something clear because we're, we're trying to be practical. And we want to know, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is it not? Am I in or am I not? Look, what we love about this guy is he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm 100% committed. The problem is he's 100% committed to fake Jesus. And if you're 100% committed to not who Jesus is, you're 0% committed to Jesus. So just to make it really plain, if you are 100% committed to Jesus as your happiness butler in the kingdom of Disney, then you are out. It, it, because Jesus is not the happiness butler and the kingdom of God is not Disneyland. I, I didn't know how to respond when, in my first pastor. I was 29 when I, when I first became a senior pastor. And there was this guy who used to attend the church I used to pastor. And I just had a conversation with him, and, and he just said, look, I just want to be honest with you. I tried the Jesus thing, and it didn't work for me. Because when I became a Christian, my life didn't get better. It got harder. And so I already tried that, and I'm done with that. I didn't know how to respond at the time. If I had it to do over again, I would say, look, you didn't receive Jesus. If you came to him as your happiness butler, as some sort of name it, claim it, if I do this, my life's all of a sudden going to get magically better you just, you never followed him in the first place. You were all in on somebody who's a fiction. 100% commitment to a fictional Jesus is a 0% commitment to the actual Jesus. And Jesus said, I just, just want you to know the reality here. The kingdom has come, but it had to come in its fullness. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be sacrifice because that's the way I'm bringing the kingdom. And if you're with me, that's how it works. Expect difficulty. Expect conflict with the world. Now, if the first guy underestimates the difficulty of the kingdom, the, the, the next two guys, they underestimate the greatness and the value and the worth of the kingdom. The first one is 100% committed, but the, the second guy and the third guy, they're kind of, you know, partially committed, if you will. They're like the average American religionist who says, I'm all for Jesus, but, but let's not take this too seriously. Uh, you know, everything in moderation. And Jesus to these two people says essentially, you cannot say I'm following you if, if you are not fully committed. If there are, are reservations or, or considerations, if there are conditions on your obedience, 
you're not really following me. You haven't made me your king. Let's look at what he says to the, the second man in verses 59 through 60. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, for a long time, Jesus has gotten a bad rap for what he says in verse 60. Because it seems like, well, what kind of, what kind of Lord, what kind of person would say, no, you can't go to your dad's funeral? What a jerk. That's not really what's going on here. In, in Jewish law, if, if your dad was about to pass away, you, you actually had to be there at the bedside. Typically, when somebody died, they got buried the same day. If this man's dad was actually sick, he wouldn't have been with Jesus. He would have been with his dad. In all probability, this man's dad's not even sick at all. What's going on is this. He's saying, Jesus, I'm just not so sure my dad would approve. I think he might disown me if I follow you. I want to follow you, but I'm not sure my dad would like it. So let's just wait until nature takes its course, and then I'll follow you. And when Jesus says, well, let the dead bury the dead, what he's communicating is if there's anything or anyone more important to you than me, it's the spiritual death of you. You're spiritually dead. The power of my kingdom is not going to come flooding into your life as long as you're kneeling down before someone else has a higher priority than me. The second man, or the third man rather, is kind of like this guy. Verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This man's saying, I really want to follow you, but not quite yet. Make me good, but not now. I, I really want to follow you, but it, right now you're not the highest priority in my life. And this kind of goes back to the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 19, you have Elijah, this great prophet, who essentially communicates to Elisha, follow me. And he does this while Elisha is out in the field plowing. Elisha asks, will you let me go back and say goodbye to my family? Elijah obliges. But it's kind of based on, on that in the, in the background. Jesus is saying, one greater than Elijah is here. Follow me. And I want you to notice something. Neither of these two, two people are asking Jesus for permission. They're saying, I want to follow you, but here's how it's going to be. First, I'm going to wait till my dad's dead. First, I'm going to go back and say goodbye to my family. They're not asking. They're not saying, would you mind if I go bury my dad? If, if it pleases you, is it okay with me if I go back and see my family? These people have already figured out what's best, what's right, what's wrong, how they're going to live their lives. Jesus is not in the position of authority. They're addressing him as Lord, but he's not Lord. They're basically telling him how it's going to be. He's the advisor, not the authority in their lives. They haven't, they haven't submitted themselves. They haven't abdicated the throne of their lives to Jesus. They're still on the throne. They're still calling the shots. They're still saying how it's going to be. And I think they're being pretty reasonable. George Barna, who did lots and lots of uh, research in this country for about a quarter of a century with regards to statistics on spiritual life and religious life in this country, he says that most Americans are like these two guys right here to whom Jesus is speaking. He puts it like this. He, he writes this article entitled, Americans Have Commitment Issues. And here's what he wrote. Americans are willing to expend some energy in religious activities, such as attending church and reading the Bible, and they are willing to throw some money in the offering basket. Because of such activities, they convince themselves that they are people of genuine faith. 
But when it comes time to truly establishing their priorities and making a tangible commitment to knowing and loving God and allowing Him to change their character and lifestyle, most people stop short. We want to be spiritual and we want to have God's favor, but we're not sure we want Him taking control of our lives and messing with the image and outcomes we've worked so hard to produce. Most American Christians are like these two guys. Most American Christians, he says, based on all the statistics and studies he's done, are like these people to whom Jesus is saying, you can't follow me with all these conditions on your obedience. You can't say, I follow you, I would follow you if only, or I'm following you, but first. If there's any if only or but first, Jesus isn't really your Lord. Now, it's not that complicated. This is not that hard to process through. Here's the point. What Jesus is saying is, I can only be known through absolute commitment. Not absolute obedience. Absolute commitment's not the same as absolute obedience. Nobody obeys absolutely. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all need forgiveness. We got that. But until you've abdicated the throne of your life, until you've given that to Jesus, you're still on the throne. You're still the king. And what that means is you're still in your own kingdom. This is really just not that complicated. But here's what happens. And and I I know this is true with regards to the Billy Graham Crusades. I'll get into this in a second. Here's what, what frequently will occur. People will think, of Christianity as, as most anything else, it's kind of on a sliding scale. And, you know, I'm just going to improve a little bit ethically or doctrinally. And so people start investigating Christianity, which, again, Jesus is all about crowds. He's glad crowds are there giving the gospel a fair hearing. So maybe you learn some scripture and you, you read the Bible and you know some Christians and you actually get kind of enthusiastic about Jesus. And you've taken 2,788,000 steps. You've stepped right up to the border of the kingdom of God. But you still, you still haven't abdicated the throne. You're still saying, I would follow you, but first, I'd follow you if only. And you're still in the driver's seat. Because you feel like you're still in a position to say to Jesus... Yes, no, 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 yes. Why are you doing this? Because you're the king, not him. Now, the frequent response from people when I get into this is like, well, okay, there are Christians, and then there are these super Christians. I'm just a Christian. I'm not a super Christian. Wait a second. That's why Jesus, no, that's why Jesus is so direct and so incredibly blunt. If you're the king of your life, you're in your own kingdom. You're not in his Yeah, but Ernest, like I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but He's not my Lord. I, you know, I I know Him as my Savior, but when it comes to my life and my decisions and my beliefs, they're they're still mine, and I'm not following Him. And one of these days, I'll become a follower. But right now, I'm just a Christian. I've accepted Him as my Savior, but not my Lord. Let me tell you, that's impossible. Let me tell you why that's impossible. Just think about this. It's impossible. If you say, "I would follow you," but first. I'd follow you if only. Whatever your but first or if only is, that's your true Savior and that's your true Lord. They're one and the same. If you say, I want to follow you, Jesus, I would follow you, 
if only it didn't mean adjusting things in my career, because I'm in one of these careers that it really pays to look the other way, and I kind of cut some corners, and I, I, I would follow you if it weren't for my career or this perception that I wouldn't be able to make as much money and keep as much money. Because really, when it comes right down to it, Jesus, what gives me joy, what gives me meaning, what gives me satisfaction, what makes me wake up in the morning, what fills me with life, is what I do and what I keep. Or if you say, you know, I would follow you, Jesus, but I understand that that would, that would kind of impinge on a lifestyle choice and who I get to sleep with and when, frankly. And actually, Jesus, you know, what, what really makes me happy, what gets me excited, what fills me with joy, what fills me with life, what fills me with purpose and meaning is him or her or them or my conquests or my open options or whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're saying, I would follow you, Jesus, but first, if only, whatever your but first or if only is, that's your real salvation. Whatever is your real salvation, whatever is, your, what is, it, whatever is the thing that you have no conditions on, that's your Lord and that's your salvation. Whatever is your Lord is your salvation, whatever is your salvation is your Lord, they come and go together. And again, Jesus says, what, look, if there's anything that you value more highly than me, if you put before me, even if it's a good thing like your career, whatever, if there's anything you value more highly than me, that's the spiritual death of you. The power of my kingdom doesn't come flowing into your life because you're still maybe just one step inside the border, but you're in your own territory. When I was thinking about the Billy Graham Crusades, I, I, I was a student at Southwestern Seminary and I was in the PhD program for evangelism. So I know some things, but I, can't, I could not find this reference, so I might be wrong. But I don't think I am. But if you look this up, I might be wrong. But as I remember it, it would appear that the majority of people at Billy Graham Crusades who came forward in American Crusades, the majority of those people were at least somewhat to very churched people. Now that's good. But do you know what that means? That means that you got a lot of people in churches who've taken their 2,788,000 steps right up to the border between their own kingdom and the kingdom of God. And some of you know where you stand. Others around you may not know. But God knows and you know, or at least you should know, on what side of the border you stand. And this makes you very uncomfortable. And you say, I wish this weren't true. But again, I don't get to, to say who, what following is. You don't. These guys didn't. Only Jesus gets to lay it out. And you say, I'm just right there on the border, Ernest. How do I get over? But three things that you need to remember. First of all, Jesus does want you to follow him. He died so that you could follow him. He knocked down the border wall so all you had to do was step over. He wants you desperately to follow him. He wants you to cross that line. Second thing is you can't do this. If I were to literally just walk over here and say, hey, could you follow me to the cross? Every single one of you could just follow me because following is not that complicated. Matthew tax collector, Zacchaeus tax collector, these people were worst of the worst sinners. Anybody can follow Jesus. He wants you to. You can do it. And the third thing you need to understand is this. There's only two options. 
You either follow Jesus or you don't. It's not that complicated. We say, why would I want to follow Jesus? Well, here's what he does offer you. He offers you peace. He offers you blessedness. He offers you growth in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He offers you personal growth. He offers transformation. You know what else he offers? Courage. You say, well, I just don't have the courage to follow Jesus. He'll give it to you. I don't know. He gives you life with God now and forever. That's not bad. That's one option. The other option is, okay, you go without God in your life for all eternity. Oh, oh. Two options. If you've come right up to the border, I'm just going to encourage you, take the step. And again, nobody else is grading anybody else's papers. You can grade your own. But if you know you're on the wrong side of the border, make the decision. To follow him. I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. <coughs> every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around. Okay, this is just between you and God. If you know you're on the wrong side of the border and you want to follow, you want to trust him with your life as you should. You just say to God, God, I know that I fall short. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. But I also know I've been looking to other things as the true salvation of my life. And I've still been in the driver's seat. I've still been sitting on the throne of my own kingdom. And right now, God, I repent of that. I turn from myself and self-rule and selfishness. And I turn in faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Lord, I know that I'm still going to fall short. I know I'm still going to sin. I thank you for the forgiveness you've given me. But right now, God, I am, I'm stepping over the line. And I am deciding to follow Jesus. No turning back. In Jesus' name, amen.